Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome everyone to Hand Therapy Heroes. Thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who did not hear our last episode, we highly recommend listening to that before this episode, as it is a brilliant precursor and introduction to the amazing hero that we have here sharing with us during this session. Our Hand Therapy Hero is Dr. Eaton, and he's going to share with us his thoughts on current practices for Dupuytren disease, as well as provide insights that will be valuable on a ton of levels for you in your current practice. So Dr. Eaton, what are the best available clinical practices available for Dupuytren, since as of this discussion, we have no cure? I wish I had a simple answer for that, but there are a lot of factors that, that all mix together. So the goal of treating Dupuytren, the big picture is to, uh, and this is actually a, sadly a very low bar, to minimize the number of permanent complications that someone has over the course of their lifetime of treatment. And that's, that's really the big picture because the, the current model of treatment is that you uh, wait for a finger to become bent, and then you do some procedure to make it less bent, and then you wait for that to start again, and you keep repeating that until uh, the patient gets tired of it, or there's a major complication and scares everybody off, or the surgeon says there's nothing else we can do, or the finger stops and, and, and doesn't continue bending. And the, of all of those things, obviously the, the best outcome is the, the last one, but we don't have good data on how common that is or whether that's even a, uh, an achievable goal uh, because a lot of people are off the radar with, with Dupuytren. So with that as the background, the, um, we have a couple options. And so there are two uh, main categories of treatment of Dupuytren contracture. Right now there's not... Uh, a proven preventive treatment, and because of the numbers that I discussed earlier, there's not even a good way to uh, test preventive treatments. There are a lot of potential preventive treatments, but we don't, without a blood test, uh, there's not a practical way to, to test them. Um, so the two main uh, physical treatments of Dupuytren are open surgery and minimally invasive procedures. So the most common way that Dupuytren is treated is with open surgery and with a procedure called fasciectomy in which the skin surgeon opens up the skin and finds the tissue that looks visibly different affected by Dupuytren and removes that. And in the process that helps the finger straighten out and then everything heals up. And uh, that um, has been a, standard kind of procedure for almost 180 years. There are a lot of different variations on it, where to put the, 
uh, incisions and whether you should do a bigger or a smaller operation. And uh, there's a lot of discussion about those, but I think they all fall into the, the, the old saying that if uh, a problem has many solutions, either all of them work or none of them work. And unfortunately, I think this is something in the, in the latter category. Mm -hmm. uh, but most people who have the open surgery and fasciectomy do well. The difficulty with it is that it has a relatively high complication rate, relatively high permanent complication rate. And uh, most studies would put that at a, around 4%. The, the numbers are all over the place, but that is a higher likelihood of having a permanent complication than most other elective hand operations of similar magnitude. I mean, that's dramatically higher than trigger finger release or carpal tunnel release or even basal joint arthroplasty. And so the problem is that every time you retreat, you have a, the same risk or a higher risk of a mm -hmm. complication. And so over time, if people uh, are treated successfully and then retreated and then retreated, the likelihood of having a permanent complication is cumulative. And that, that often is what stops people from coming back for yet another treatment. Now, dermofasciectomy is like fasciectomy. Um, the, the main difference is that in addition to removing the diseased area of, of tissues under the skin, certain areas of skin are removed as well. Mm -hmm. And these are typically in kind of wide areas where the Dupuytren really affects people and around the area of the distal palmar crease, you take out a section of skin here and replace it with a skin graft, or this whole section on the, uh, the pulp space over the proximal phalanx, uh, or even the proximal and middle phalanx to be removed and replaced with a skin graft. A dermofasciectomy is not a fasciectomy plus a skin graft. You have to have a, uh, an excision of a fair bit of tissue, and it's actually called a functional unit. You remove a whole section, usually from midline lateral all the way over to midline lateral, and that... Um, it, when it's done that way, the chance of having recurrence is, the, is lower than with the traditional fasciectomy. The uh, problem in the literature is that people don't always distinguish between uh, proper dermofasciectomy and just doing a fasciectomy plus putting a skin graft in or taking out a little bit of skin here or dropping a skin graft in when the skin is too tight to be able to uh, sew the skin edges back together. Mm -hmm. Those aren't dermofasciectomy and small skin grafts like that don't improve the, the long-term control. They don't reduce the recurrence rate. So the advantage of fasciectomy, uh, and even more so for dermofasciectomy, is that it lasts uh, the longest uh, compared to other treatment options. The disadvantage is that it has a, a fairly high complication rate. And uh, the other group of treatments are minimally invasive. And with these, no tissue is removed. There are two versions of minimally invasive treatments. One is in which the cord is uh, mechanically cut, and the other is where the cord is uh, chemically softened and weakened. And uh, when uh, the cord is cut or chemically weakened, then the surgeon can pull on the finger and stretch out the, the tissues and, and regain extension of the finger. So the um, most common minimally invasive procedure currently is collagenase injection. In the States, that's Zyaflex. In uh, Europe, it's Zyapex, and that is a, 
very well studied uh, treatment in which the person gets a shot into the cord in an area where the cord really can uh, be felt well and is clearly tethering the joint. And then the collagenase enzyme dissolves co uh, collagen, which is the main uh, protein that cords are made of. It's let to soak in for a day or a few days, and then the person comes back to the doctor, the doctor numbs up the hand, pulls on the finger, and the cord rips under the skin and uh, allows the finger to straighten out. The uh, next most common minimally invasive treatment is the one that, that I had a lot of experience with, which is uh, percutaneous fasciotomy or needle apneurotomy. And with this, the cord is cut uh, under the skin, but it's cut, instead of using a scalpel, the surgeon uses a, a little hypodermic needle because the tip of a hypodermic needle has two little cutting edges on it. It's not, it's not a smooth conical tip like a sewing needle. And uh, anybody who's uh, worked with needles uh, to some extent may have had a situation in which the needle grazed across their finger and cut just like a, a scalpel. And so you can use that effect to numb up the skin, uh, not numb up the tissues under the skin. The surgeon can poke the, a small needle through the numbed spot on the skin, feel the cord with the tip of the needle, and graze across or pierce through the cord enough that it weakens it, and then they can pull on the, the finger and uh, uh, straighten the finger out. And the advantage of these minimally invasive procedures is that it's much less of an ordeal for the patient. So rather than having possibly a few months of uh, post-op recovery as you would after surgery, uh, it can be a matter of days. The uh, ordeal of minimally invasive procedures is much less than for uh, open surgery fasciotomy. And what I mean by that is that the uh, traditional open surgery is done typically in an operating room as an outpatient uh, setting and the minimally invasive procedures are office procedures. So the whole ordeal of checking to the hospital for surgery and having to go through all the hoops that you have to for that is, is uh, uh, not there for the minimally invasive procedures. Uh, and in addition to that, when someone has the regular open surgery for Dupuytren, one of the problems is that the biology of Dupuytren is similar to that of wound healing. And so when you make big cuts in the palm right in the area where the Dupuytren biology is active, that sometimes sets it off. And at the very least, it takes a while to recover from the surgery uh, to have the wounds healed up. And that's typically six weeks, but if you're not lucky, it can go on for months with just a smoldering inflammation, swelling, stiffness, pain difficulty and things that people like to complain about because they're interfering with their, their lives. And so that's, that's part of the, um, the ordeal of, of making it through it. Um, the comparing the two, um, fasciectomy has a higher risk of having a permanent complication and that risk varies depending on who you've read, but uh, a reasonable ballpark is somewhere between four and 5% risk of having some lingering complication, not just bruising, but uh, problems with feeling in the finger, problems with stiffness, uh, problems making a fist afterward, because stiffness is not just lack of ability to straighten the fingers, it's also a lack of ability to bend the fingers. And that can be a, an even bigger nuisance. Um, a common kind of problem after surgery 
is cold intolerance. That is uh, people whose hands are exposed to cold weather, or even if it's just cold ambient temperature, people may have uh, changes in the circulation of their fingers with pain, numbness, stiffness, color changes. It can be fairly dramatic. It's not a as big a deal if you live in warm climates, but most people don't live in warm climates and it can be quite quite an issue. That relationship to surgery and the relationship to Dubitrin hasn't really been worked out. There is some anecdotal evidence that Dubitrin itself might be associated with cold intolerance, but there's not been a study done on that. It, it certainly is an issue which is more likely after regular open surgery and may be increased after minimally invasive procedures, but um, we don't have any firm numbers on that. The uh, cost of treatment really shouldn't figure in, but it does. Uh, and so the most expensive uh, treatment to have once is the open surgery. Uh, the uh, Zyaflex has been priced to be similar to open surgery, so it's a little bit less expensive. Uh, needle aponeurotomy or percutaneous fasciotomy is, is much less expensive. And so on, from that perspective, the, a uh, needle fasciotomy is, is the most economical treatment. The next uh, way to look at it is to take into account the fact that there are recurrences. And so there's a study that came out recently that looked at the five-year costs taking into account the fact that people that have minimal procedures are likely to have recurrences within the first five years and, and afterward. And so if you add up the cumulative cost of treatments over the course of five years, the people that have open surgery are have a low likelihood of needing to have a second procedure. But people who have minimally invasive procedures are fairly likely to have a, a repeat treatment. And so because Zyaflex is more expensive than uh, needle aponeurotomy. Even if there are multiple uh, procedures, the needle aponeurotomy is uh, cheaper cumulative cost. And in this study, the uh, collagenase treatment actually was the most expensive treatment over the course of five years because of uh, repeat treatments. Um, at the same time, there's this cumulative uh, complication rate. So if every time that you're treated and retreated, there's a risk of having a complication. And the difficulty with uh, open surgery is that there's a high complication rate, relatively high, each time you operate. And so if you have to have two procedures in five years, that's double the complication rate or the likelihood of having a permanent complication. So that also has to be figured in. There's, there's really not a perfect balance. It's really a matter of choosing your risk of complications and your, your comfort with dealing with that risk versus uh, the ordeal of, of the procedure and the cost for the procedure. So, so. With, with that in mind, all those risks, what are your thoughts on conservative management? Because over the course of my practice as a therapist, it's virtually been told to us as practicing clinicians, orthotics and treatment by therapy is of no use whatsoever. And I know that there is a study fairly recent in 2017, which we'll include in the information sheet that we'll have available for all our listeners afterwards, that showed that orthotics is a very possible treatment method for as a conservative treatment method. So I was curious to know what your thoughts are with regards to that. 
it's it's a very uh, interesting topic, and it's it's not just that; it's the zillion dollar question: how do you how do you avoid the need to have sharp things in your hand to treat your dupatrin? And the um, the holy grail would be some kind of preventive treatment or some type of way to straighten up fingers without having to go through an invasive procedure, because even a minimally invasive procedure is invasive, and the Experience with this is mixed, and so I'm, I'm going to go through a couple little data nuggets. So one fact is that most surgeons in the States, uh, after they've performed a fasciectomy, open surgery, will refer a patient for, not just for therapy, but for splinting uh, for a period of time after surgery. And there's no fixed numbers on that, but typically it's in the range of, of four to 12 weeks. Uh, of either continuous splinting or uh, a, an initial period of continuous splinting followed by a longer period of nighttime splinting. That um, varies regionally. In uh, Europe, it's not as common to splint routinely. And uh, the difficulty with it is has been lack of data. So at this point, there are five different studies that have looked at the efficacy and the added benefit of splinting routinely after open surgery for Dupuytren. And all of these studies have failed to show any added benefit in terms of long-term outcomes. And splinting for a prolonged period of time can uh, increase the risk of, of uh, losing the ability to bend the fingers, losing flexion. And so it's not a... Uh, uh, an intrinsically completely benign intervention. So looking at that, that really goes against what uh, I think anybody who deals with Dupuytren would think of that splinting wouldn't be effective. Now, this is a specific situation. This is after open surgery for Dupuytren in which the biology has been challenged and is potentially ramped up. And um, so it's it's a difficult thing to to guess how well people should do with splinting. But there is another data nugget, which is this paper that you, that you referred to, a 2017 paper. It was originally presented at uh, the 2015 uh, International Congress on, on Dupuytren Disease in uh, the Netherlands. And what this group did was to uh, compare a almost continuous splinting, 20 hours a day, of either a palm splint or a uh, splint on the back of the hand to see uh, whether this could straighten out fingers that had developed uh, contractors from Dupuytren. And what they found was that in this relatively small study that they were able to straighten out fingers that uh, to some degree that had Dup established fixed Dupuytren contractures. And this is, um, not out of a vacuum. There have been other people that have reported this type of finding, but without um, having a, a, a well done uh, scientific study to document it. So for example, there's a German hand surgeon, Albrecht Meinl, who has a lot of experience with percutaneous fasciotomy. And he has for over a decade been um, been promoting the idea of having uh, continuous splinting after a needle procedure uh, to straighten out 
joints further than the needle procedure was able to straighten him out. And he has a, a number of uh, impressive anecdotal stories of, uh, with pictures of people whose fingers really uh, were straightened out considerably. But he's not published any kind of uh, perspective or randomized study on it. But this, this study is. Now, about this study, um, a couple different things. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, they, there was not a power analysis to see how large the study really had to be to get uh, statistically significant uh, uh, numbers on this. So that's, that's one uh, difficulty. The other is that there's no follow-up. The, the study duration was only until people finished splinting. So that's a real unknown. What we do know is another data nugget, which is the experience that was developed from developing skeletal traction for Dupuytren, which uh, in the States has evolved to the, the most common device is the digit widget. So this is a, a program of slowly stretching out fingers in order to, um, to undo contractures and to make surgery safer when, when it is done. The people that pioneered this were the, uh, the Messinas in uh, the 1990s who had a large external fixation device that they used to simply pull on bent fingers to straighten them out. And what this did was to, over the course of weeks, uh, fixed contractures could be straightened partially or sometimes completely. And when they did this, uh, initially they thought, great, we've cured Dupuytren. But as they followed through on this, uh, over half of the people that were treated this way had a, a recurrence of their contracture over the course of weeks once they stopped this continuous pulling on the finger. And so they modified their recommendations for people that had severe contractures, if somebody has a contracture that's a, you know, 170 degrees, it's dangerous to operate because you can't see what you're doing, you're operating at the bottom of a hole. And so just stretching the fingers out to make the field uh, more visible is, makes the surgery safer. And the recommendation was to straight, stretch fingers out with some type of device that's attached to the skeleton that pulls the, the joints uh, slowly straight and then go in and do a fasciectomy to clean out the Dupuytren. And that has uh, the best, still the best long-term outcome of treating severe contractures. So knowing this, let's circle back to this paper on splinting. The problem is that um, based on the Messina's experience, even if you stretch the fingers out, splinting 20 hours a day, if you stop that altogether, you'd have a probably a high likelihood of, of losing the gains that you'd made. And so you might say, well, what about if we splint at night? Uh, we splint intermittently during the day. And what's the data that we have on this? Uh, well, there's not any good clinical data on it, but what we know about how, uh, what happens at a cellular level with Dupuytren disease is that the way that contractures develop is through these special cells called myofibroblasts. And myofibroblasts are uh, specialized cells that can grab the tissue and pull it, can grab the extracellular matrix and these little collagen threads that are inside our body and pull them together. And the way it works it involves two types of contraction. 
and this is this is important. So there's one type of contraction which is uh, called periodic contractions, and these are weak contractions that the cell can pull a little bit and it can move loose strands of collagen that are attached to the surface of the cell. It can move those around a little bit, but they're fairly weak. And they happen all the time, around the clock, every 100 seconds. So every minute or two, there's a little pull of, of these surface areas where collagen is attached to the, the surface of the cell. And occasionally, if you have a loop of collagen, two areas where collagen is attached to the cell surface will pull together and touch. And when that happens, there's a, a loop of extra collagen that's made and there are enzymes that are circulating around the cells that are actually made by these myofibroblast cells that will trim off these loops where the collagen has been pleated and join the two ends together, shortening a little tiny collagen thread. So that happens around the clock. Now there's another type of contraction, which is called an isometric contraction, which are not as common. They are a thousand times stronger than these little periodic contractions. And they're strong enough for the cell to actually grab onto the extracellular matrix and pull it and deform it and cause uh, loose strands of, of collagen. And so it's, those contractions last for hours. So while they're going on, then you have this, these loose collagen strands that uh, that the little periodic contractions sometimes will pull together and trim out uh, excess length. And those two work in, in lockstep. They, they sort of ratchet wounds closed because this is part of how, how our bodies heal open wounds is the, the, you have this strong contraction that pulls on everything. And then while it's doing its work, then these little contractions actually pleat and trim individual collagen threads. So I know this sounds like it's way off topic, but let's go back to splinting. So if you're going to splint, then um, ideally you'd have to splint just continuously because every minute or two you're having these, uh, these, uh, this setup that the uh, myofibroblasts can shorten the collagen strands. And it's just shortening the collagen is what produces these cords in the palm. And Anytime that your fingers are relaxed, the collagen in the palm is lax. And at, if you have these myofibroblasts in the palm that are just pleating little loose threads and the hand is relaxed as it is while you sleep, then you may have some shortening. So in theory, you'd have to keep your hand splinted, your, your joint splinted in extension pretty much around the clock to prevent that from happening. And uh, so when, when you were speaking about that, that occurs in wounding with the two different dances basically going on from the two types of contractions, that's a right. normal, normal wounding process. Right. So in a Dupuytren's patient, even without a wound, they're just like Dupuytren's, here we go. It, that activity is always going on regardless. So right. it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a constant wound. A Dupuytren's right. disease the, pathology is like a constant. Const, it's a constant, it, it, very much so, with some differences. So the, um, the, the strong contractions are believed to be triggered by pulling on the myofibroblasts. So that's uh, the logic behind avoiding beating up your hands if you have collagen, if you have Dupuytren, because 
the uh, mechanical forces on the palm, they actually trigger these, these strong contractions in the little myofibroblast cells. Um, the other thing is that the uh, cells that these myofibroblast cells make uh, collagenase, and so that's why if you're, um, if you're pulling on the, the tissue very slowly, not enough to trigger a strong contraction, but uh, enough to take the slack out of the collagen, then the enzymes that dissolve collagen may actually weaken it in areas and allow it to, to open up further. So it works both ways. That's the mechanics of how splinting continuously might stretch the fingers out. And that makes sense because they specifically stated in that article the importance of not over aggressively splinting them, basically, that if you are aggressive in your splinting nature, then you're going to have a reverse effect, just, just right. like you would in your, in your therapy. And you know, many therapists do think, oh, we got to pull these people so hard. And, and right. in fact, that's causing more harm than good. Exactly. This is, uh, Roz Evans has published uh, an article or two on, on that. And the most important take home that, that uh, I, I think from her work was that people that were aggressively splinted, people that had, uh, uh, she compared having a, a, a palm splint that would, a, a traditional palm or extension splint versus uh, a dorsal splint with active extension uh, of the fingers to, to a straight position and found that uh, people that had the traditional uh, palm splitting with a little bit tight, uh, not only had more complications, but they didn't have as good final results when all the dust settled, because I think it provoked more inflammation. Which does go back to just therapists in general sometimes have the idea of the no pain, no gain. And, and yeah. we know from being many years in the, in the field, both of us, that the ones that are over-treated oftentimes right. do very poorly. And even patients themselves, they think the more the better, and then they over-treat themselves. So when they have wounds or any type of act, active changes in their tissues, they, we have to remember as therapists the fine line about treatment and over-treatment and being right. too aggressive. Yeah. yeah, the finger is not a knee. Right. So, right. Uh, and that, that is true. And that's true also for the uh, uh, skeletal traction with the digit widget people that, that want to move on a little faster, they'll put an extra rubber band on to pull the tension a little bit, fat, a little bit greater, and they're the ones who have uh, more inflammation, increase the risk of having uh, infection and, and uh, irritation that limits the amount of time the device can be on the finger. So um, the other thing about wound healing that, that is different, uh, that relates to this paper is that the uh, paper that you mentioned was comparing what they call compression orthoses. So these were not uh, specific to push the finger straight, they were just to have some pressure on the wound. And uh, the background of that is that uh, light pressure and light continuous contact has been shown to uh, flatten out hypertrophic scars and, uh, uh, and keloid scars even to a certain extent. The reason that I mention this is that biologically hypertrophic scars and keloid scars are different than Dupuytren scars and Dupuytren tissue. Uh, and the measurable difference is, is in type 3 collagen. Dupuytren is known uh, for having high levels of type 3 collagen, particularly in the early active phases. Type 3 collagen is a, 
immature type of collagen that, that is produced in early wound healing, but is ultimately removed. So hypertrophic scars and keloid scars actually have normal levels of type three collagen, which means that they are very different than whatever's going on in Dupuytren biology. So this might be why uh, uh, having continuous pressure or taping uh, on Dupuytren itself might not be as effective as it is on a, on a routine inflamed uh, incisional scar. So interesting. interesting. Yeah, really interesting. A little bit uh, with regards to the different levels of Dupuytren with versus MP versus PIP, I know there's significant treatment parameters that change. Could you touch on that just a little bit? Sure, thanks. That's, that's an excellent question. So the, the MP joint and the PIP joint mechanically are very different. They, the shapes of the joints are different, the location of the ligaments are different, and the reaction to prolonged immobilization is different. Uh, we know just from treating other hand uh, conditions that you can splint the MP joints in flexion for long periods of time and not have much risk of, of uh, precipitating a flexion contracture of those joints. And that's just because the structures that, that uh, hold the joint uh, are, are not prone to uh, shrinking in a way that limits the later joint motion. PIP joint is very different. If you splint the PIP joint in flexion for a prolonged period of time, you're very likely to provoke a permanent loss of extension of that joint. So that's, that's a baseline without Dupuytren. The joint capsule uh, on either of those joints is not directly affected by the Dupuytren biology. So when someone has a PIP problem, from a prolonged Dupuytren contracture, it's not a direct effect of the disease, it's an indirect effect of the positioning. So over time, the, the volar plate of the PIP joint tends to shrink, the accessory collateral ligaments uh, shrink, the extensor mechanism, particularly over the PIP joint dorsum, will stretch out or, uh, or worse, and uh, the consequence of this is that um, even fairly severe isolated MP contractures have a pretty good chance of having a complete correction and staying that way, whereas uh, isolated contractures of the PIP joint uh, are likely to have incomplete correction if they're past a certain degree of contracture. So the uh, one of the breakpoints is uh, around 40 degrees. That's been used in the Zyaflex literature to uh, identify being at low risk or high risk for an early recontracture after treatment. Uh, there's a study uh, by Paul Smith who found that four out of five um, PIP joints that were, that were 60 degrees or greater, four out of five of those joints had some damage to their extensor mechanism. And so the window to get the best result for the PIP joint is certainly before 60 degrees and ideally before 40 degrees and um, right otherwise you have to treat the consequences that occurred with the, the PIP joint and the extensor mechanism right and we don't have good answers for that so when somebody has a, a, a fixed uh, joint capsule contracture we know that going in and cutting the capsule uh, is is not a reliable way to get a good result and it, it can have complications uh, as well that, that are unintended. And um, part of the problem with the PIP joint 
has to do just with the mechanics of Dupuytren disease and uh, can explain why the small finger PIP is, is the worst of all. So we know that <clears throat> uh, we measure angular contracture in Dupuytren disease, but Dupuytren actually causes linear contracture. Dupuytren doesn't bend the joints, it just shortens tissue on the front of the joint. I made up a virtual model to see the effect of the um, shortening of cords in different locations uh, and how much angular contracture they would cause. And uh, just from straight geometry, if you shorten, uh, if you have a, uh, an angle and you shorten the uh, length that's on the opposite side of the angle somewhat, if you uh, move in closer to the axis of the joint, that same amount of shortening will cause more angular contracture than if the cord or the, sh or the, the third limb of the triangle is further away from the axis of rotation. So the further away the cord is from the middle of the joint, the more, uh, the less bend it produces. Now, bringing this back to the hand, um, the metacarpophalangeal joints are larger than the PIP joints, and so MP cords are, by their anatomic nature, going to cause less of a contracture than PIP cords. Uh, because lateral cords are more dorsal, they're closer to the joint axis, lateral cords produce more angular contracture than central cords. And bringing this back to the, P to the small finger, lateral cords are more common at the PIP joint than at the MP joint. And lateral cords are more common in the small finger because of the abductor digitimenomy uh, uh, anatomy. And the small finger joint is smaller, just more compact than all of the other PIP joints. And so the same amount of shortening, just a few millimeters of shortening at the small finger PIP joint will cause a greater degree of bend of that joint than it would at any of the other joints. So that's why it's, it's a dog. There's nothing magical about it. It's just there's a, this uh, confluence of bad anatomy on the small finger PIP. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. You always just think, oh, that PIP is a problem, but now yeah, we understand it's, specifically it's, why it's a problem, and especially yeah. the little finger. Right, because it's small. It um, has no chance. Yep. <laughs> so let me ask you before we wrap up, there's this TV commercial that I keep hearing about from patients and, and from, I don't have a TV, so I haven't seen it, but they keep saying, what about this faxonhand.com? Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because when I did go to their site, it does kind of look like it has some information about Dupuytren's and being uh, public right. awareness. So what, what's going on with that? Well, the first thing is I think anything, <coughs> sorry, I think that anything that raises awareness to the general public about Dupuytren disease is good. Now, this Facts on Hand site is uh, a uh, public outreach educational site that's sponsored by uh, Endo Pharmaceuticals as part of a, an unbranded uh, marketing campaign for Zyaflex. So the, the, the uh, uh, campaign doesn't mention that drug by name, but it's clearly reaching out to people with Dupuytren and it has links that do link back to um, the drug company. And it's, I think, a, a reasonable uh, step 
for that company to pursue to raise awareness about Dupuytren disease. And um, I, anything that does that, I'm all for, because uh, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, uh, oh, what is that? I've never heard of that before. Then uh, we could pay for this research today. <laughs> yeah, that too, along with people that come in and they're like, why is my hand bent? Or so it's wonderful that we had this opportunity to spend time with you to learn a, a lot about Dupuytrens and uh, your your goal of finding the cure of this crippling disease. So with that in mind, let, let's wrap up with how therapists can be a part of this cure and what you envision for this year, next year, five years from now, and so forth. That's a great question. And therapists are, are critical for uh, dealing with people with Dupuytren on a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the big problems of Dupuytren is that uh, patients have a lot of questions, they have a lot of issues that they, they commonly don't feel are addressed when they go see a surgeon. Uh, and uh, this uh, depends on the surgeon's style, but it's not uncommon for a patient with Dupuytren who has a lot of questions to be handed a brochure and told to read it and uh, that's it, and come back when they, when they have a finger that needs to be uh, treated. And so there's this bad disconnect that the patients feel of not being in control of their lives, not having any real control of their disease, despite being interested and aware. And um, that is something that, that uh, hand therapists, I think, see a lot more than, than surgeons do, because uh, particularly at, when someone's uh, recovering from a procedure, they spend a lot of time because it uh, uh, requires a lot of fiddling after after treatment. Um, and so, I think that that one option is uh, since hand therapists are on the front line of dealing with a lot of people with with Dupuytren, they see people with Dupuytren even if they're not seeing them for that diagnosis. Uh, is to guide uh, patients to seek. Uh, qualified specialty care, and uh, I'm, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but it's it's important that that uh, somebody with Dupuytren go to a board-certified hand surgery specialist who's who's gotten specialty training, fellowship-trained hand, hand surgeon, because Dupuytren is difficult, and there are some docs who uh, were exposed to hand surgery in their training, but that doesn't really... Uh, prepare you for dealing with the the really difficult surgical changes that Dupuytren disease causes. And so some people get in over their heads. And so it's important that if possible, that uh, a person be seen by a, uh, a board certified hand surgery specialist. That uh, another thing is to explain to patients the window of opportunity. And uh, a lot of folks, uh, won't be bothered by Dupuytren in, from a functional point of view if they have a, a small bend in their their uh, finger. They uh, particularly an isolated PIP bend uh, that that is uh, accompanied by a, a lax MCP joint, and so people can compensate by hyperextending their MP joint. Right. And the problem is once that gets to a point that it really is a problem, they may be well past the 60 degree mark. So. I think the the drumbeat would be to say the best results are when a joint is treated when it's between 20 and 40 degrees. If you have the opportunity to be treated in, in 
that time, that's really the window to get the best results. Um, and the, the other thing is to support Dupuytren research and to refer patients to uh, dupuytrens.org and to refer all Dupuytren patients to enroll in the free research study at uh, link through dupestudy.com. And with the dupestudy.com, as we discussed in it, uh, briefly, everybody should put their information in there because you do need controls. Right. We need controls. We need people with and without Dupuytren disease. And, and we need people at all stages of, of Dupuytren, even people that haven't seen a doctor. I mean, even particular people that haven't seen a doctor. It's, it's unclear how many people are out there who have Dupuytren who uh, haven't seen a doctor because they think it's arthritis or they've been misdiagnosed uh, as having some other condition, uh, or they have a relative who had a bad experience with surgery for Dupuytren and they know what it is and they're not going to see the doctor. <laughs> they can still sign up for the study so that we can get uh, more information about what the, the real impact of the disease is because it really flies under the radar. So our um, timeline for progress is I we have uh, got people enrolled in the International uh, Dupuytren Data Bank. We have hit our first funding benchmark to be able to begin the blood testing. We still need to do fundraising to um, do the analysis of the blood testing, and that's uh, that's a significant amount because it's, it's very complex data. We have to have a data scientist working on that. But I expect within, by this time next year, that we will have uh, our preliminary data, some of our preliminary analysis of what uh, factors are abnormal in, in this preliminary, this pilot study of, of Dupuytren disease, and uh, potentially what drugs seem to be good matches for that. And uh, so that's, that's what I'm hoping in, in one year. And then we'll have to go back to the National Institutes of Health, use that data to say, here is some preliminary data. We need to fund a larger version of this study. Um, I would expect in five years to be well on the way with a larger version of this study. I would expect there to be some progress in cell culture and animal model um, models of Dupuytren biology. Uh, doing early testing of some of the medicines that are identified from the pilot study as potential uh, uh, Dupuytren therapeutics. And I would expect in 10 years uh, that uh, we'd be uh, at the point of having human trials uh, underway. I think that's a, a reasonable thing. My, uh, my personal timeline is I have Dupuytren. My um, late wife's father had terrible Dupuytren. I have four boys. They have Dupuytren in both of their parental lines, which means that they are at high risk, not just for uh, more aggressive disease, but for early uh, onset of disease, which correlates with more aggressive disease. So I have to have a medicine out. My calculations are in 15 years before my oldest is likely to show his first signs. So <laughs> the push is on. And uh, I got skin in the game. Thank you for spending your time with us. And we will definitely put the push out there to get more people on the site and registered on 
you know, your, for your newsletters, which I always enjoy so that people can become more aware because like you said, awareness is the key. Even if we have to go through the drug companies, right? Whatever it's, it's, it's um, a problem we have to find the answer for and awareness is the first step. So, well, thank you very much for this. This is a, a great opportunity and uh, always good talking with you. Thank you. And everybody can email info at handtherapy.com. And I will include as many of the articles and information that uh, we discussed as I can. Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.